Genesis chapter 6, verse number 5. And God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And it repented the Lord that he had made man in the earth, and it grieved him at his heart. And the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, and the creeping thing, and the fowls of the air. For it repenteth me that I have made them. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Heavenly Father, we pray that as we consider the background of this scripture, we might recognize that we are living in the same day, the same circumstances, with the same judgment in front of us. We pray that you would be gracious to us as you were to Noah in that day. Speak to our hearts, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. We call it Noah's Flood. But it wasn't Noah's at all. It was the judgment of the Almighty God on other sinners, not on Noah. It was, without question, the most astounding, most mind-boggling event in the annals of time. It was the most creation-changing, the most negatively staggering incident to have taken place in the world from the moment that God created the universe until today. But I must warn you, there is a greater judgment yet to come. Consider how many centuries had passed from the day that God created Adam to the time of the flood. Some preachers say they know exactly how long that was, how many years that was, but I'm not that smart. I know that Enoch was of the seventh generation from Adam, and I know that Noah was three generations after that. A conservative estimate, a very conservative estimate, would put the number of years close to the same number of years as between Columbus's sailing from Spain until today. If a generation was then 60 years, then it would be about 600 years. Generations perhaps were longer then. There are some people who say it was more like 1,600 years between uh, the creation and the flood. Using the smaller number, how much has the world changed since Columbus sailed the ocean blue until today? There are so many ways to measure that. For example, how has the world's population increased? Since Mankind, in the early days, were living up to ten times as long as they are today. I tend to think that the changes in that society, the old society, was twice as great as the changes in the last 600 years here. Or maybe ten times as great. For instance, there may be as many people today in the world alive as there were in Noah's day. Maybe more, maybe less. 
there could have been 8 billion people alive in Noah's day and hundreds of them could have been several hundred years old, old enough to have heard the preaching of Enoch. Doing the population math, with the details we have in the Word of God, I'm not guessing, we have some of this in the Word of God, Doing the math, there could have been millions of people alive whose grandparents had been alive when Adam was still on the earth. That is a possibility. And all of those people, 8 billion, 10 billion, 4 billion, doesn't matter. All of those people were swept into eternity by the flood. Possibly billions of people in a matter of days. Today we hear about huge natural disasters like the fires in Maui, tsunamis, horrendous hurricanes, and our jaws drop and, and grief fills our hearts at the pain of those who are suffering. But not one recent disaster is more than one-tenth of one percent of the human loss that took place during the flood. In a very short period of time, hundreds of millions of bodies began to be tossed on the unrestrained waves of the sea amidst carcasses of all kinds of animals before they began to float to the bottom of the sea. If the ark had been one of today's boats with portholes running down the side, the... Uh, the wives of Noah's sons would have hung curtains on all those windows to keep from looking out and seeing the ashen faces of bloating bodies floating around beside the ark. It was probably horrendous. The beauty of God's original creation was gone, wiped out by the violence of the deluge. The Noahic flood was the most catastrophic event ever to deface the earth, and that includes any asteroids which may or may not have hit this planet. And the flood has made more of an impression on the psyche of humanity than anything else ever has. Eight people were saved by water. And when those four couples, those four families emerged from that ark, everything that they had known before was gone. Everything. Their entire world had been changed. And as they brought life and children and grandchildren into the world, they shared with them what they knew about the original creation, what they knew about God what they knew about sin and of judgment and of righteousness. And as their children and great-grandchildren spread across the new earth, they carried with them that knowledge of the flood and these other things. Even today, those stories and those histories are heard in hundreds of languages throughout the world. Humanity's first few generations could, should not, could not shake the impact of the flood that it had on their mothers and fathers. There has never been an impression made by any unnatural disaster more impactful than Noah's flood. 
it has taken nearly 200 years of so-called scientific attack to do away with the flood. And it's not gone away. Because it's based on truth. And those stories which are believed by the Navajo or the people in the Amazon jungle or in uh, New Guinea, they're based on fact. And it's scattered throughout the world. I've been reading for the last couple of weeks, rather slowly I have to admit, reading a book of sermons by the Baptist preacher B.H. Carroll. I've really been blessed by these. In one of them, dealing with the spirits in prison, 1 Peter chapter 3, those to whom Christ preached and Peter taught, Carroll made some comments about the flood which flooded my heart with this message. I have to say that I was delighted to hear, to read, that Carol wisely agreed with my interpretation of 1 Peter chapter 3. He, Christ, went and preached unto the spirits in prison, which sometime were disobedient, when once the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah. I was a part of a message, actually part of several messages that I preached here recently. Carol also agreed with the opinion that I have in regard to Genesis chapter 6 and verse number 4. The verse just before our text reads, There were giants in the earth in those days, and also after that when the sons of men came in unto the daughters of men, and they bare children to them, the same became mighty men which were of old, men of renown. I will come back to this here in just a minute. This morning, I would like to take the introduction that Carol had to his message from 1 Peter and develop it into a message of my own. Carol said, I now want very briefly to point out clearly the causes which led to that stupendous catastrophe, the flood. What brought about Noah's flood? What do those events teach us about today? Of Adam's first three sons, one died, and one chose to leave the presence and the blessing of the Lord. The first baby born into this world was Cain. The second was Abel. And apparently the third was Seth. I believe it was Seth. We need to remind ourselves that all three were born equally depraved. They were all sinners. They were children of Adam and Eve who had fallen into sin and corrupted themselves by that sin. Every child born into this world entered life as thoroughly corrupted and depraved. None of these were righteous. None have ever been born righteous in the sight of God. These three were all sinners including martyred Abel and obedient Seth. They're all sinners. I hope you are familiar with the history between brother number one and brother number two, Cain and Abel, which culminated in Abel's murder. The thing that I'd like to highlight is that Cain chose to disregard the instructions that he had been given about the worship of God. 
I'm sure that Adam had properly served the Lord after his expulsion from Eden, and he taught his children, this is the way we worship God. This is the only way to worship God. Because we are all children of Adam, because we are all sinners, God requires that we worship him through blood. Blood. You don't have to like that fact. Cain didn't like that fact. But it is true nevertheless. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. Abel understood. He obeyed God. Cain should have known, but he chose to rebel against the instruction that God, the, the doctrine that God had given to him. Then a uh, confrontation began, and growing out of Cain's wicked, wicked anger, his brother was murdered. Simply put, there was no fellowship between Cain and the Lord. And God said to him, Now art thou cursed from the earth, which hath opened her mouth to receive thy brother's blood from thy hand. Do you remember Cain's response to God's statement? He blamed the Lord for the extent of his punishment. Cain said, Behold, thou hast driven me out this day from the face of the earth. From thy face shall I be hid. Well, brother, that was your choice. That's a result of your choice. Don't blame God. Don't blame God's righteousness for this judgment that you have brought on yourself. And still, the Lord was very gracious to Cain. Genesis 4.15, And the Lord said to him, Okay, therefore, whosoever slayeth Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord set a mark upon Cain, lest any finding him should kill him. And Cain went out from the presence of the Lord, verse number 16, never to return. He's gone. That was the first step toward the Noahic flood. What are some of the lessons coming out of this? Here's one. The depravity of man operates independently and independently of circumstances and family relationships. One brother chose to rebel against God. Two brothers chose to obey God. And the wickedness of society doesn't create evil people. Evil people create the wickedness of society. The second step toward the flood wasn't as dramatic But the family of Cain gradually deteriorated. I don't know if that's a good word to use. Genesis 4, 16 through 24, describes how Adam's grandchildren on Cain's side became less and less interested in the things of God. Uh, They began to focus on commerce and community, on science and technology, rather than on the Lord. I believe Brother Fulton brought a message related to this not too long ago in regard to cities and whatnot. The descendants of Cain became craftsmen and artisans, creating everything from musical instruments to instruments of murder and mayhem. 
There may be nothing wrong with designing a brass trumpet or even a sharp knife for kitchen use. But the atmosphere of those verses suggests that the things they were doing was, were without thought of God. And whatsoever is not of faith is sin. Whatsoever is not for God's glory eventually boils down to man's glory. And the Lord doesn't like that. I experience an illustration of this all the time. Every day. Every day. I get a couple dozen pictures on my computer of beautiful scenes of Canada and North Idaho. Many are gorgeous. Many of them are absolutely breathtaking. But not until my rare comment, and I don't comment very often, never do any of those who are putting these things online say, look at the glory of the Lord. Look what the Lord hath done. Look at how we should praise the Lord. Primarily, it's about the subject itself, which is beautiful, or about me, the photographer, and the camera that I use to get this picture uh, to publish for you. I see a very secular, unspiritual attitude in Genesis 4, especially in the light of the last two verses. Adam and Eve had a third son, called his name Seth. Seth grew up and eventually had a son. He called his name Enos. Then began men to call upon the name of the Lord. Generally speaking, society had become godless. Sometimes godliness can be relatively neuter, but it rarely stays that way, becoming more wicked and more violent. What are the lessons coming out of the second point? One of them is that without the intervention of the grace of God, society always deteriorates. It does not rise. It goes downhill. Despite the growth of knowledge and science and technology, such things in themselves do not lift society toward God. And the more we get caught up in non-essential secular things, the less godly we, you and I, will be. And that can only lead to disaster. The internet will not bring us closer to Jehovah as a general rule. The third step toward the flood was the intermarriage of God's people with the children of Satan. Genesis 6.1 came to pass, when men began to multiply on the face of the earth, and daughters were born unto them, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men that they were pretty good to look at. They were fair. And they took them wives of all which they chose. In regard to this verse, please do not get enamored by the mysticism of a few theologians out there. The sons of God in those days were exactly like the sons of God in these days. Let Scripture interpret Scripture. 
They were not angels cohabiting with the uh, children of men. They were not angels. They were not demons. That's an impossibility. The Bible tells us so. I don't have time to multiply them, but there are several New Testament passages like Romans 8, 14 through 17. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. So apparently there were some being led by the Spirit of God. For you have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear. You've received the spirit of adoption whereby we cry unto the Lord our God, Abba, Father. The Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. Paul told the brethren in Galatia, Ye are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. Galatians 3.26 They were the more righteous. The world was dividing at that point. There were the descendants of Seth who were basically trying to serve the Lord. There were the descendants of Cain who, no doubt about it, were not serving the Lord. And these two started to intermingle. There's a principle taught throughout the Word of God with one or two highlights in the New Testament. 2 Corinthians 6.14 says, Be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. When someone as wise as Solomon marries an unbeliever, even his marriage is headed toward disaster. And when someone as unwise as King Ahab Mary's wicked Jezebel, it was another step toward the destruction of the nation of Israel. It is unbiblical, it is unwise for Christians to marry non-Christians. No matter how wonderful that unsaved heart appears to be at the moment. Yes, the daughters of men... The daughters of secular earthly men may be beautiful. In fact, they may make themselves more beautiful than they really are by wearing provocative clothing. By visiting body-altering doctors and artists. But that person's physical beauty, along with her wonderful sense of humor, and boy, can she cook. She's a really good cook. And her joyful spirit and her willingness to please, they all may mask a demon in development. Unless that young man or that woman is born again, their pleasant nature will decline, decay over the years. Don't be led by your emotions. Listen to the Lord when it comes to thoughts about marriage. Look at the facts. Look at the histories, which are repeated over and over and over again, not just in the Word of God, but in our daily lives. Christians should not marry unbelievers. The fourth step toward the flood was the natural digression of those intermarriages. A young couple in their day, madly in love, got married. And into that uh, union, children were born. 
Father was a worshiper of Jehovah. Mother was not. Or perhaps it was the other way around, but according to the illustration we have here. Which of those parents would the children, all with evil natures by birth in themselves, of which of those parents would the children more likely follow? In this instance, they followed their secular mothers, drinking up the spirit of rebellion which they possessed, she possessed. Imagine a mother living only for this world, living only for temporal pleasures, living for immediate joys, and around her now are uh, a couple of little boys and a girl. Of course, that mother remains as close to her extended family as possible. And her brothers and her uncles come to visit the family from time to time. They are mighty men. They are men of renown. They're tall. They're handsome. They may be stronger than the children's own fathers. They have stories to tell. They've gone to war. They killed other men. They're hard drinkers. They're loud. Ah, oh, but they're fun. They attract attention wherever they go. And this woman's little boys stand in awe of them. They stare at the colossal form of their uncles and their cousins. There were giants in the earth in those days, Genesis 6-4. They were not freaks. They were not half human and half demon or angel. They were simply big, powerful, important men. Giants in industry, giants in the military, politicians, powerful people. And the little boys say to their mother, Mama, we want to be just like Uncle Ahab. And the daughter says, and I want to marry someone like Uncle Ahab. When the children of a divided marriage grow up and marry, they will choose unrighteous partners before they will a righteous partner. So here's dad, a righteous man, mom, an unrighteous woman, three children. Which direction are these children with evil hearts themselves going to go? They're going to follow mom in the secular things. How many generations will it take before the godly line of Seth is swallowed up by the ungodly line of Cain? Possibly two generations? Maybe even less than that. How quickly will the influence of righteousness dry up in circumstances like that? Verse 4. There were giants in the earth in those days. And also after that, when the sons of God came in unto the daughters of men, that they bare children to them, and they became mighty men, which were of, of, which were of old men of renown. And God saw the wickedness of man that was great in the earth, and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. By the ten, tenth generation from Adam, the whole world was filled with evil and violence. I know that it's probably not a good word, but all of this provoked 
the Lord to judge the world with the flood. Finally, the grieved Holy Spirit ceased to bless and protect humanity. Verse number 3, Jehovah said, My spirit shall not always strive with man, for that he also is flesh. Yet his days shall be in 120 years. The word strive is most often translated to judge, but it is also translated to contend and even to plead. The striving of the Spirit of God with men could be interpreted as the Lord's conviction upon their souls. Remember, during this spiral into sin and disaster, there were righteous men standing for God and serving Him. Specifically, we were told that Noah was a preacher of righteousness, 2 Peter 2.5. And there was godly Enoch in the New Testament, Jude 1.14, tells us, And Enoch, also the seventh from Adam, prophesied of these, saying, Behold, the Lord cometh with 10,000 of his saints to execute judgment upon all and to convince or convict all that are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds. But sinful man continued his blind but rapid descent into disaster despite the warnings and the prophecies. And the Lord said, eventually, my spirit shall not always strive with man for that he also is flesh. Yet his days shall be in 120 years. There are good scholars who interpret that statement to be about 120 years of God's withholding his judgment. God's patience. I want to argue with that conclusion. Because we see God's patience throughout the word of God. Yes. Even in the length of time it took for Noah and his sons to put the ark together. It was all God's grace. But humanity abused God's patience and continued its decline into debauchery and rebellion. And God saw that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. By grace there are exceptions. But this, I believe, is God's conclusion about the world in which we live. The vast majority of Americans rarely attend church. They have no desire to do so. They have no desire for God. There is none that seeketh after God. Right. Romans chapter 3. These people have better things to do on Sunday than to waste their time worshiping the Creator. And most of those who do go to their cathedrals and churches and steakhouses and uh, uh, mosques don't actually worship Jehovah. To use the Lord's own words, they're filled with their own vain imaginations about God. And the Holy Spirit is grieved just as Jesus wept over the city of Jerusalem. And the grieved Holy Spirit stopped instructing. Stopped convicting. Stopped blessing that last generation prior to the flood. Generally speaking, drawing our facts from Genesis 4, 5, and 6, these are the steps leading up to the most astounding 
natural disaster in all time. But of course there was nothing natural about it. It was, it was divine. It was, in a sense, miraculous. And I hope that you can see that today's society is running headlong down the same winding road into disaster. The world is still saying, we will not have this king to rule over us. If we aren't allowed to worship him the way Cain did, then we're not going to worship Jehovah at all. We love creation more than the creator. We certainly love ourselves more than we do the Lord. The Noahic flood was the worst natural disaster this creation has ever experienced to this point. But if you'll remember just a few minutes ago, I said there is an event worse. A global disaster which will be worse than the flood. Which killed everybody but eight people. In his second epistle, speaking of the scoffers of these last days, please turn to Second Peter. His second epistle, Peter, let's see. Second Peter chapter 3, verse number 5. Speaking about the scoffers of these last days, Peter said, For this they are willingly ignorant of, that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of the water and in the water, whereby the world that then was, being overflowed with water, perished. But the heavens and the earth, which are now, by the same word of God, are kept in store, reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and perdition of God, ungodly men. God promised that there will never be another worldwide flood. There will never be another worldwide flood. I can't get into the details at this time, but the Bible teaches there is another disaster that is worse than the worldwide flood in its depth and in its extent. Notice verse number 10. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in the which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the very elements shall melt with fervent heat, and the earth also, and the works that are therein shall be burned up. Seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons ought ye to be in all holy conversation and godliness? Looking for and hastening unto the coming of the day of God, wherein the heavens being on fire shall be dissolved and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. There is only one way to prepare for this firestorm that's coming. It was the same preparation that Noah was preaching and Enoch was preaching. John the Baptist was preaching. Then Paul preached. Repent. Repent. There is an escape. It's in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's in the, the sacrifice that Christ made at Calvary. You need a Savior. Yes. We all need a Deliverer. And there is one. Yes. 
There's none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved, but there is one name, Christ Jesus. I implore you once again to repent before God. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Confess your sinfulness to the Lord. We are all born children of Cain. We're all sinners. Call upon the Lord to save you. Granted, you may not be alive when the Lord sends this final firestorm. You may have already died. In that case, you already know about the fire. You're already in touch with it. You need to be delivered from your sins now before these things take place. Save yourselves from this untoward generation of people by humbly and completely bowing before the Savior, Lord Jesus Christ.